You're listening to the sixth season of Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about the intersection of liturgy and life. I'm Father Jeffrey Reddy, Director of Orthodox Christian Studies at Trinity College, part of the University of Toronto. I'm also the Rector of Holy Merbera's Orthodox Mission in Toronto. I'm joined by my former student and good friend, Father Yuri Hladio, who pastors St. Maria of Paris Orthodox Mission in Hamilton. For our sixth season, Father Yuri and I will be making public our series on the Desert Fathers and Mothers of the Church, previously released only for our patrons. You'll be hearing the episodes exactly as they were originally released. We release special private issues for our Patreon subscribers on a weekly basis. If you like what you hear and you'd like access to more podcast content, you can go to patreon.com forward slash enacting the kingdom or go to enactingthekingdom.com and follow the link from there. For now, we hope you enjoy the public release of this episode. Welcome to the Enacting the Kingdom private podcast. You're listening to this because you've chosen to financially support this project, and Father Jeffrey and I are so grateful to have you as part of our Patreon community. As a show of our gratitude, please accept this Patreon-only episode as a special thank you. Welcome back to the series on the Desert Fathers and Mothers to all of our wonderful listeners. We are going to be covering two distinct topics, uh, 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 two distinct themes in the sayings of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Uh, The first one is simplicity. Uh, Simplicity and baked into that is, you know, humility, uh, the beginner's heart. And we're also going to be covering the theme of spiritual elders and soul friends in this episode. Um, spiritual elders and soul friends. But first, I think we're going to begin with simplicity, Father Jeffrey. So uh, unless there's anything you want to jump in uh, about this theme of simplicity, I I thought maybe we could just pick a quote, read it, and just dive right in. But I'll let you, uh, if you want to say anything before, you can, Father Jeffrey. Well, I think we should begin simply. So read a quote, sure. Perfect. Well, here's a very simple quote for you. Abba Piman said about Abba Pior, that every single day he made a fresh beginning. Mm-hmm. That's it. Um, I'm not sure if I read the name Pior correctly. Um, <laughs> it's good for me. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, if if you have children in school and their report came home, you know, at half term, then the teacher had written <laughs> about your child, you know, every day. <laughs> it's a fresh beginning. Right. You'd kind of... <laughs> Uh oh, I know. Yeah, you'd wonder, you know, what's mm-hmm. behind, you know, something like that. It it sounds not exactly like a full on compliment, and right, maybe right, not yep. entirely critical either. So that, I mean, you kind of wonder what's behind, you know, something like that. So until you kind of contextualize this <laughs> with a mm-hmm. lot of the other sayings that suggest much the same thing, that really um, that's a good thing, mm-hmm. and um, you know, so many people. It will come to me for counseling or confession or whatever, and it's always father. It feels like I'm only just beginning, right? Or it feels like I'm back to where I was, or or whatever. Well, welcome to the desert, right? This mm-hmm. is exactly the kind of scenario that we find, and it's not a bad report to have heard about yourself that every single day you make a fresh beginning, because the emphasis here, in some ways, is on that word "fresh," right? That um, that we begin anew every day. We begin in that grace of forgiveness, which is the 
the life of the age to come that we are already made participants of. That is the air that we breathe, is newness, renewal, freshness, uh, springtime. And, you know, there's no accident that the desert and spring are connected, even though you wouldn't kind of on a botanical or whatever other level associate the desert with new life. But, but in fact, Lent, you know, means springtime, right? It's that lengthening of the days, the the newness of of life, of renewal, and so forth. So this is altogether good, you know, that Abba Piman says about Abba Pior, that every single day he made a fresh beginning. Um, mm-hmm. It's to be received with with great joy, yes, uh, and not with any ambiguity, um, and, and so forth. Uh, you know, to be a beginner is to be a practitioner of the desert life. Is to is to be in that you know, kind of mode. I think it was Thomas Merton in uh, one of his books, um, Wisdom of the Desert, that wrote that there are only three stages to this work of being, you know, a desert father or mother or to being attending to the the kind of care of your heart. Um, Three stages are to be a beginner, to be more of a beginner, and to be only a beginner. So um, this is good, you know, that he Mm. had a fresh beginning every day. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me, you know, maybe to talk a little bit about church history here, but there was controversy in the early church about whether there were sins that were unrepentable, right? Um, like if you uh, apostatized, right? If you denied Christ in a time of persecution, should you be allowed to repent and come back into communion? Um, and, and, you know, the church was figuring some of this stuff out. And I mean, this idea that every single day you can make a fresh beginning, I think, is a way of saying you the um, the road of repentance is always before you, no matter where you are and or how far down you've gone in your life. Right? Um, that that fresh beginning is available to you. Exactly that. There's never a time when there are not steps ahead of you that you can walk on, that you can walk towards the life of God. God will never, you know, wall himself off from us. It's not like there's a bridge you can take that'll take you too far, a door you can open that will will shut you away from from the the life and grace of, of God. It's exactly that. Now that's an interesting observation you just made because the church did indeed struggle with this through the second and, and third century. This was a big theme in in the early church as to, you know, what do you do with people who have you know, come to confess Jesus as Lord, who have been baptized, who have become partakers of the holy mysteries, that great grace of the the life of the age to come, but then go off and and contradict that by turning away from it in some way or another. You know, whether that was through some kind of personal or social sin, or whether it was by offering incense to the emperor and, and by denying Christ in that way, is it possible to be you know, reconciled. And always and everywhere, the best answer to that was always yes, right? Even though the church didn't necessarily have the mechanism to do that, the sacrament of confession hadn't yet um, developed. And of course, it will develop in and around this time. It'll start to develop in different forms, in different places. And that will be one of the answers. And in fact, the confession gives you a kind of second baptism some of the early you know fathers will talk about at that point you know the, this idea of the tears the baptism of of tears and and so forth as a not so much as repeating a baptism because baptism is unrepeatable but of a kind of renewal a return you know to that well this is interesting because you know these early desert fathers and mothers don't 
yet have that. The sacrament is not yet established to, to be able to, to allow that. And you might think that, you know, as we've talked about before, these fathers and mothers who've gone off to the desert are, are somehow, they would be the rigorists. You know, they're the harsh ones. They're the ones who are, have, you know, cast judgment on the compromise and settling of the world of kind of cultural Christianity at their time, right? The reason they're in the desert is because they don't want to be tainted by all those people who have, you know, theoretically said they're Christians, but have gone on to, to live kind of a, another life. So these must be, you know, harsh and, and, and rigorous indeed, right? And yet this is what their, their life consisted of, recognizing that even in the desert, Every day they need to make a fresh start. Every day is a newness of life. Every day is a clean slate. Every day is finding that path again. You know, um, I don't know if we'll be coming across it in in what we go uh, um, through through these different sessions, Father Yuri. But the, one of my favorite Desert Father stories is you know when uh, some monks are, are are met by some people who've come out of the city and they're asked, you know, what is it you do out here all the time? You know, like looking around, thinking, what is there to do, right? And the answer is. We fall down, we get back up. We fall down, we get back up. We fall down, we get mm, back up. Mm-hmm. And each getting back up is a beginning, right? It's a new beginning. It's, you know, yes, it's a, hopefully in a kind of spiral thing and you're further along and, and further towards the kingdom. Um, and so it's not in that fullness, you know, of, of meanings of, of a beginning. And yet to recognize that you're a beginner is to, is to have this kind of humility, to, to know that, you know, we are no better than those people in the city. We're no better than anybody who has apostatized or no better than anybody who has committed some kind of, you know, public, personal or social sin and needs to be, you know, in a kind of penitent state within the church. You know, the church will develop this whole category of penitents who get dismissed, you know, from from the liturgy and, and so forth. It's happening around the same time. But the, the monks in the desert the and the nuns, the, the desert fathers and mothers are saying, we're like that too. And we need to Every day, start again. Every day, mm-hmm. return to that that notion of, of of fresh life, of new life. There's this uh, one saying here. Uh, one day, one of the young men asked uh, Abba Macarius, "Abba, tell us about being a monk." And the wisest of monks replied, "Ah, I'm not a monk myself, but I've seen them." Yeah. <laughs> well, just that, right? You know, um, of course. You know, this is one of the main, you know, elder figures who's actually not even accepting upon himself this idea of, of being a monk. And of course, we, we described monk before, the monachos, as the one who is single-minded, right? It's not so much being alone. I mean, that's often how people have etymologically explained that word, but it's a, more about the single purpose, the kind of unique focus of someone's life. And so for him to deny that means that he's admitting I'm not so single focused. I, you know, other thoughts intrude, other ideas come into my heart, other actions and behaviors, you know, will afflict me during the day. And so, of course, I'm not a monk, you know, um, you know, it's like the, we, we should and, and ought always to, to kind of never accrue to ourselves any of the categories that ultimately belong to God, right? If we're holy, it's only because we're participating in God's holiness. Well, you know, for in this case, you know, if I'm a monk, it's only because I'm participating in that unique single-minded devotion and obedience of the Son 
to the Father. You know, this is one of the, the gospel, you know, themes, particularly in the gospel of John, about, you know, the son sees what the father is doing, hears what the father says, and does that, right? That's the kind of monachos, <laughs> single-minded devotion. Well, of course, none of us are, are that. And so none of the, the monks of the desert would be able to say, I'm that, but they would be able to say, I've seen it right? And I want to emulate that. I want to participate in that. And ultimately, that's a participation in the life of, of Christ. So I'm going to read another saying here that, that kind of looks at that aspect of simplicity. Abba Daniel used to tell about how, about when Abba Arsenius learned that all the varieties of fruit were ripe. He would say, bring me some. And he would taste very little of each, just once, giving thanks to God. Uh, yeah, it's it's um, we we often think of the desert monk as the intense faster, right? The uh, being um, yeah, being very strict, I guess. But but here we have this image of somebody who is enjoying food in moderation, right? Like enjoying food simply, um, not letting the um, uncontrolled desires to uh, overtake him, right? Somebody who has the passion of gluttony under control, uh, somebody who's able to, and, and in that is actually able to appreciate what he is eating and giving thanks to God with, with every bite. Yeah, I mean, this is truly beautiful. And, you know, millennia before the slow food movement, <laughs> you know, of the late 20th and early 21st century, emerged, you know, that idea that, you know, the best way to enjoy food is to, is to kind of, you know, spend time over it is to, is to luxuriate in it. Right. And we, uh, we associate sometimes luxury with, with excess, with, um, you know, with, with having everything you want when you want it and, and consuming, 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 but actually what the Christian life and the desert life teach us is that in fact, that restraint leads to a greater joy, right? The restraint leads to, you know, more taste, you know, more savor, uh, you know, more enjoyment of the, of what that is. And it doesn't have to be an enormous amount at, at the end of the day, right? It, it just needs to be actually celebrated for, for what it is. And so, I mean, I've often encourage people on, on the, the path of, of fasting in, in the Christian life by simply pointing out you will enjoy feasting more, right? There's nothing like having given something up for a period in order to reacquaint yourself with it, to re-enjoy you know, what it is. So the one who don't, doesn't normally have access, you know, to, um, you know, all these varieties of fruits and, and everything, but to, to get that in season, you know, strawberry, the first time it comes out and it's only available for a short time. And, and here's the other thing. I mean, when you, you eat properly, you're eating seasonally and therefore things are only available. You're fasting from strawberries most of the year because they're no, no, not properly available. Now, of course, we go to our grocery stores and they're there every week because they're coming from this, that, or the other part of, of the world. And they just don't taste like anything. And this is a perfect illustration of what this is all about. You want to lose the joy of food. You want to lose the savor and um, enjoyment uh, of food. We'll eat the same things all year round. 
right? Because they're just going to become tasteless, and 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 quite literally so, because they're they're traveling such great distances. You eat locally and seasonally, and you eat slowly, and you take time to 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 find, to source, to to get to know your, the suppliers, and and you prepare the food, and and you go slowly through that, and you share that in a hospitable environment. Food becomes this tremendous sacramental connection between the community here that you formed and and the, the life of God, right? And I think that's what's implied in, in a saying, you know, like this, all the varieties of the fruit were ripe. Interesting. We're ripe. It's not, you know, I happen to have them or got them from some distant location, but they were ripe. In other words, in season, bring me some, and you would taste a little of each, giving thanks to God. That's what you're able to do, right? I think for a lot of us, food has just become, you know, a mechan- me- mechanical part of our lives, right? It's and it's it's a it's a chore, a burden. It's you know this constant sourcing and 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 feeding our families or eating, you know, and and therefore you know the whole rhythm of feasting and fasting in the, in the church year just doesn't make any any sense. I think if we ca- recapture this kind of idea of it, it's a it's a simplicity that leads to a, a greater you know joy a greater experience and that's the thing about humility and simplicity and and this kind of single you know devotion we think it's a kind of deprivation of somehow how am i going to live this this really strict you know we think of asceticism as 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 a deprivation as a, as a giving up of all sorts of things it actually leads to more freedom and more joy and more you know grace and 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 fulfillment and that's i think a major selling feature of this and the very best of kind of modern psychology and plans and you know food um movements and everything have they picked up on this right and and whether directly or accidentally but they you know this is a human you know kind of reality and it's just like if you want to um enjoy sex then constrain it in marriage and have one loving lifelong partner, right? Rather than what people think of as well, I, I, I'm all into that sex business. Let me go and have as many partners as, as possible. Well, that actually leads to a tasteless, joyless existence, right? So by constraining, by simplifying, by being humble and putting things into their proper place, the enjoyment factor is magnified, you know, many, many times. And that's, I think one of the real lessons of asceticism is it's ultimately not joyless in any means. It is, it's actually freeing up the human person to enjoy the fullness of God's grace and gifts through creation. Well, let's move on to the next theme that we're going to cover in this episode, which is spiritual elders and soul friends. So I'll just read a saying and we can dive right in. A brother asked Abba Piman, why should I not be free to do without manifesting my thoughts to the old men? So, so before I keep reading the quote here, you know, this practice of having a spiritual father that you reveal your, your thoughts and your hangups and, and everything about yourself to this person who can then guide you, right? Um, the old man replied, Abba John the dwarf said, the enemy rejoices over nothing so much as over those who do not manifest their thoughts. It seems to me that we have a saying here that that really points to the need for us as humans to verbalize what is going on in our internal world yeah. um, and to have a trusted source to which we reveal these thoughts. Yeah, and, and that sounds you know pretty scary. Um, I mean, I think most of us are 
in the position where we like to keep a really close guard over our inner thoughts. Um, we certainly wouldn't want people to have access to them. Um, and you know, I think we're absolutely frightened, you know, most of the time about what, what may be revealed. Um, and it's probably the thing we would associate most with, okay, well, that's a different, you know, mode of life. If, you know, if I were ever to become a monastic, well, then I might have to practice this, you know, revelation of, of thoughts or confession of, of thoughts, but you know, it doesn't apply, you know, to the ordinary Christian, the, the lay, the lay life, um, in the world and so forth. And, you know, this is, I think, where there's a lot of misunderstanding, you know, kind of, of what's going on here, because we've tended to think of these kinds of relationships as a therapeutic, you know, kind of one, um, you know, people who do have a, tendency to want to reveal stuff or thinking about being on like some sort of psychotherapist couch or something, or maybe they've been invited onto the Oprah Winfrey show or something. But um, it's not that so much. It's more about being able to live without shame, right? Um, and if you have a loving, trusting relationship. I mean, ultimately, this is probably the thing that is most healing to a human person, to be known mm. fully and loved, accepted, right? The thing that I would imagine, I mean, I'm not a psychotherapist, and I don't haven't studied this in great detail, but I imagine the thing that drives an awful lot of anxiety and depression and struggle in in terms of mental and, and spiritual health has got to be the notion uh, that we are we're shamed by what we experience inside of ourselves right and that nobody but nobody could actually love us if they only knew right so rather than thinking of this as a kind of i don't know um a, a program for you know, re revealing things in order to be punished or revealing things in order to, to kind of uh, achieve some kind of advice, <laughs> you know, or to be told what to do or anything. This ultimately should be pictured as a kind of being known completely, that there's nothing is, that is being held back so that in that moment, we can be assured first and foremost of God's utter and infinite love for us and his grace and his forgiveness and also of the love and acceptance of other human beings right that that by say I, I can say anything to this person to my soul friend or elder or spiritual guide and that does not rupture the relationship that does not end this conversation that does not you know put off their love for me, their acceptance, you know, for me. And to, to know that, and then they can be, take all kinds of different forms. And I hope most people have at least one other person with whom this is the case. To know that is ultimately to be placed in the right stance, you know, in, in, in regards to our own created reality and, and in our, you know, relationship with God, right? That, 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 yeah, I mean, that's what, you know, previous thing we were talking about, you know, but there's always a way forward, right? I think it, that idea that there isn't, that we've kind of reached the limit that we're cut off from God's grace or repentance is no longer possible or, you know, God loves everyone, but somehow I've put myself outside of that category of everyone. 
that happens, you know, in that moment where we feel that there's just that acceptance that that love has has ceased, right? If we were, if we have that acceptance and that love for who we are, then we know there's a way forward. It may not be all that clear. It may be pretty, you know, dark and obscured and shadowy, and we may need a lot of light to be cast on that. We may only be able to take one step forward at a time. But nevertheless, there's always a way forward when we've revealed everything and are told that we're loved. And that's what this relationship is about. So it's not about, you know, I'm doing this because I'm going to get advice or I'm going to be in some sort of therapeutic relationship. You know, Oprah's going to fix my problems or whatever. Um, it's not because we're doing this and we're going to be told now go do a thousand prostrations because my goodness, nobody's ever been as bad as that before. I can't believe you told me that sort of thing. None of that. It's about I've been known and now loved, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. because of that, everything becomes possible, right? There's always a step forward. And I think you know, that that's it's incumbent upon us to seek out relationships where that's happening for us. It's also really, really important for us as Christians. This is why St. Paul over and over and over in his epistles tells people, support one another, bear with one another's burdens, love one another. That's what this is all about. This is what he's talking about, that in every day of our life, hopefully there's at least one person we've made that overture to. I love you. I know everything that you've told me about you, but I love you. You know, I don't have to put it in quite those terms, but we live in such a way that we love and support people so that yeah. we are never the problem, right? We're never the, 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 the locked door on the path of their spiritual development where they've concluded because of our behavior or actions or words that there isn't a way forward because they aren't, mm -hmm. they're, they're somehow shut off from God's love. I think probably more than every, any other thing that we're asked to do as Christians, that's got to be where it is. That's what loving your neighbor as yourself has got to be all about. And without that, we don't properly love God. Yeah. I, I have a pet theory. I mean, we don't have too much time to get into this, but I do have a pet theory that one of one of the issues in our society is that we don't, uh, we as individual people, unique people, don't have as many friends, like in that truest sense, as maybe mm -hmm. in ages past, um, because there's a lot more separation. We're isolated through our homes and through our uh, through the internet and things like that. We have a lot more communication, but I think we have a lot less trust, right? A lot less close, deep relationship. And there's a saying here um, from Abba Piman uh, that he also said, do not lay open your conscience to anyone whom you do not trust in your heart. And, right. and I think one of the struggles that we have is that we, I think like in our culture, how many of us have anyone that we would trust in our heart? Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I really sympathize with, with people today. Like, I don't know. What do we do as Orthodox in our society? Do we just go and f go spend time at a monastery and find a spiritual father? Do we try and develop a relationship with maybe our parish priest and, and develop a, a kind of a, a relationship there? Do we maybe spread out some of our thoughts to different people? Like have a couple of friends, maybe, um, you know, our spouse, could they play this role? I'm, I'm wondering how does this, how does this need for us to be able to verbalize our deepest uh, selves to others? How can we? How can we do that today? I think all of the above. Um, and, and this is the thing: it's not, you know, it could be that you have a kind of lifelong, singular, you know, focus for that soul friendship, you know, with one with one person. That's marvelous when that happens. But I think, you know. 
in that kind of complicated world that we live in today that you describe, I mean, often that's not even possible, right? Because of people moving and people's responsibilities and, and whatever. So having more than one person, including, you know, one spouse or, you know, deep friendships that one develops um, in the church, as well as, you know, the kind of uh, more focused you know, idea of pilgrimage and going to maybe visit a particular monastery. I think that, that rather than viewing visiting monasteries in the way you kind of you do a kind of bucket list of travel destinations, having one monastery that you go back to again and again, and then maybe within that monastery, one monk or nun with whom you, you build a bit of a relationship. And if you're returning there a couple times per year, even once a year, it's a remarkable thing how quickly that relationship can can progress and, and to have the opportunity to unfold, you know, one's heart. Now, obviously, that's not going to be the same thing as confessing fully one's thoughts on a daily basis. Um, and I, I don't, don't even know that that practice is necessarily the best thing in a lot of marriages, right? A lot of marriages just aren't mature enough to be able to, to kind of cope, you know, with that level of intensity. So, be careful, obviously, with this. I mean, that's the point of um, this say, saying, you know, do not lay open your conscience to anyone whom you do not trust in your heart. But I think what we need to do is pay attention to this and find one or more of these ways of doing it. W what are we doing instead, actually, is this really weird thing, right? Of instead of cultivating these deep relationships and open relationships, these soul friendships, right? That's the, the terminology that comes from the Celtic tradition, which I think is something which we would be really well to appreciate, right? I mean, that and to, to appropriate for ourselves today, the anamkara is the soul friend, the, uh, the, you know, it doesn't have to be anybody in any particular form or vocation or anything. It's just somebody who has that relationship with us and we can have more than one of them. And a lot of the Celtic saints, the early Irish, you know, would emphasize that this is the important thing to get busy doing in the Christian life, find soul friends. Because without that, you're going you know, nowhere. But instead of doing all that, I saying, well, what, what do we spend most of our time doing? We spend our time, you know, forming very, very superficial relationships through things like social media. Right or in any other venue in the in the world, and then notice what we actually do. We do the opposite of unfolding our hearts. We carefully curate a very crafted mask of what our lives are like. Right? Oh well, look, I've made a nice you know cappuccino, and look, I've made the heart thing in the in the foam and everything. And I'm going to take a photograph of that. Then people will draw all kinds of conclusions about the kind of person I am, right? Because I put that on Instagram or I put that on, on Twitter or Facebook or something like that. And all these quote unquote friends, as they're called in these environments, which are the far, furthest thing from Anamkara uh, and soul friend that you can imagine, but they'll draw all sorts of conclusions about the kind of person, my kind of values and my inner thoughts from what I've carefully curated for them to see. And if it's not that, then it's, you know, pictures of my new possessions or, or what my children are doing or whatever. And behind the facade of all these, you know, images that we're projecting, you know, we're never actually either paying any attention to or, or getting anywhere close to unfolding our hearts to someone. So it's, there's no, um, it's no surprise that the people who are doing this to the extreme, 
right, are the people who are the most anxious, the most depressed, the most sad. And then suddenly the person whose life you've been seeing, which seems so joyful and grace-filled and, and wonderful, you know, commits suicide, right? And you think, well, where, how does this work, right? Well, because at no point were they themselves known or loved, right? Because all that people expressed, you know, likes and, and, and retweets or whatever, all the things that social media does, you know, for you, all they were doing was just admiring the projection, the image, the false curated, you know, mask that has been shown to the world. And at the heart of that person, never even got at or looked at, examined, never unfolded and never loved you know, is, is a kind of lost human being. And, and I think this is like the world today has been engineered to do the opposite of everything that we've said from the desert is what mm. we should be doing. So it, it, I mean, it's, it's so insidious that we've, we've not even noticed, you know, this happening, but that's how opposite the world we've constructed with it, as you say, the lack of, of, of friendship. And so maybe the main you know, message the Christian should be bringing to the world today, you know, isn't one of, you know, the morality, you know, lists that we need people to adhere to or whatever, all these kind of character uh, caricatures of, of what Christianity is. We need to bring back friendship. If we did that, people would start paying attention to the Christian message and say, hang on a minute, this seems to be something true and beautiful and healing in a way that, you know, none of this other stuff we've constructed you know, is so soul friendship, I think could, could be a, a major selling point for, um, Christianity and for the, this desert life, um, that, that we've been, you know, meditating on here, um, in, in a, in a way that the, the world would be, you know, really interested, uh, to hear just precisely because of what you said about the lack of friendship today. Uh, as usual, I'm going to read a, a, a saying from the desert fathers and mothers to take us to the end. Great. <clears throat> it was related of a brother who had committed a fault that when he went to Abba Lot, he was troubled and hesitated going in and coming out, unable to sit down. Abba Lot said to him, what is the matter, brother? He said, I've committed a great fault and I cannot acknowledge it to the fathers. The old man said to him, confess it to me and I will carry it. Then he said to him, I have fallen into fornication, and in order to do it, I have sacrificed to idols. The old man said to him, Have confidence. Repentance is possible. Go, sit in your cave, eat only once in two days, and I will carry half your fault with you. After three weeks, the old man had the certainty that God has accepted the brother's repentance. Then the latter remained in submission to the old man until his death. Well, that does it for another episode of the private podcast of Enacting the Kingdom. Thank you again for all your support. Please feel free to comment with any follow-up thoughts or questions. Father Jeffrey and I read them all. Looking forward to having you back soon. 